we know that a little bit of impulsivity and a lot of hyperactivity and a little bit of inattention is very typical below the age of five. So in terms of attention, the expectation until the age of 12 is really one minute per age of attention on something they don't really want to pay attention to. So if, if so, I've had parents come into me with a three-year-old saying, he can't focus for more than three minutes on something. And I say, well, that is, that's okay. That is developmentally expected at this age. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Welcome back to another episode of The Well Child. We are so excited for today's guest. This is actually a part two that we're doing with Dr. Shivana Naidu. We actually already had a podcast with Dr. Naidu and we had so much fun. We knew that we could not let this go with just one episode and we had to continue on the fun. So Dr. Naidu is a double board certified child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist. She's an outpatient psychiatrist, and she's worked in several types of clinics and uh, academics and nonprofit organizations. Over the course of her career, she has seen thousands of young patients and their families, and she has done tons for the field of mental health. She's also a mother of two boys, ages three and five, and today's topic is one that we know parents are dying to hear about. She has recently also started a podcast that's called Thinking It Through with Dr. Naidu, Child Psychiatrist, to help empower parents and patients to get the best mental health care possible. So today's topic, by popular request, we are going to talk to you and Dr. Naidu all about ADHD. So Dr. Naidu, thank you so much for joining us today, and it's so great to have you back. Yay, thank you for having me back. I'm so excited to be with you guys. You guys are awesome, awesome, awesome. So are you. And we learned so much already from your first podcast. For those who haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to the first episode. And we knew that we were just going to have so much to talk to you about and pick your brain. And we just love it. So um, briefly, do you mind telling our audience a little bit again about yourself? And then we'll delve right into ADHD. Sure. So uh, so my name is Dr. Naidu. I have a a new podcast called Thinking It Through with Dr. Naidu, Child Psych psychiatrist, mainly because I feel like we all know with COVID mental health care is kind of on the top of everyone's mind. Um, but there really is still a lot of smoke, smoke and mirrors about it. So I just wanted to provide another avenue for providing good education and good options, because if you don't know your options, you can't make good choices. So that's really the goal of my podcast to give options and education about getting the best mental health care you can for your kid. I'm a mom of two amazing boys, Gavin and Dylan, ages six and three and a half. 
I am an outpatient, mainly outpatient uh, psychiatrist. Right now I work full-time with children, so 17 and below. Um, in the past, I've also worked with adults and children as I'm board certified in both. I really have a passion for providing education to my patients. I love working with mothers and in perinatal medicine, uh, but for now I'm working with, with basically children at a big nonprofit in Arizona. So, um, so yeah, so thanks for having me on today, guys. That's awesome. Thank you. We really need wonderful psychiatrists and psychologists um, really at this time, because as you know, the pandemic has brought a lot of challenges. Um, learning has, you know, been changed completely for a lot of parents and for children. So um, there's just so much to talk about. And this topic, definitely, I know you're going to be a wealth of information for our listeners. So before we ask you all of our burning questions, if you can just define ADHD for our listeners, that would be great. Okay. So that sounds really simple, right? Because everyone and their mother and their dog has ADHD now, right? Everyone's become a colloquial term. A little bit of an intention means I have ADHD. So I think uh, a lot of people feel like they can understand and know this is definitely ADHD. I have a lot of parents come in and tell me my kid has an attention, you know, I need to help them. And then and I do an assessment and it's really not quite ADHD. So, um, and I have parents that come in and say, my kid doesn't have ADHD. They have ADD. So I want to clarify what the acronym of ADHD means. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Now, I got to admit, I have a problem with this name. And the problem is that it does not really demonstrate all of the symptoms of ADHD. The end will start with D, that disorder. ADHD really is not a disorder. It's more like a syndrome. It's more like a cluster of various different symptoms that can be kind of juxtaposed in different ways. So one kid can have ADHD and be bouncing off the walls. Another kid can have ADHD and be staring off into space. They have the same disorder, quote unquote. They have the same treatment, but the manifestation of symptoms look totally different. So that's why I think it's important to, to know that this term does not really encapture all of the symptoms. In general, um, what you need to have ADHD are a couple of things. You need to have one, someone who is board certified and knows what they're doing, diagnose your kid, right? Uh, a teacher cannot diagnose your kid. A counselor cannot diagnose your kid. It has to be a board certified pediatrician, psychiatrist, or a certain licensed professional. Some social workers in different states can diagnose it, as well as psychologists. But really, those are the only people that can diagnose. Neurologists as well, developmental pediatricians, board certified people. You need to have about six or more of the following over a span of six months in two settings or more. So if you're only having these symptoms at home, may not be ADHD. If you're only having the symptoms at grandma's house, may not be ADHD. If they're only in school, may not be ADHD. It has to be at dance practice, at church, at school, at home, in various settings, okay? So what the name doesn't capture is that they're it sounds like there's just two groups of symptoms, right? Attention and hyperactivity. Historically, in the DSM or the Psychiatrist Bible, which is what kind of our, our criteria standards is in the DSM, there's been various growth and changes of this name. In the past, it included hyperkinetic um, impulsivity. In the past, it was ADD in the 1980s with or without hyperactivity. But the most recent DSM-5 is ADHD and certain subtypes of inattention, hyperactivity and impulse control, and a combined type. 
So that's how the categorization goes. And there are three main groups of symptoms. The one that we all think of and know of is inattention, right? Poor focus, carelessness, distractibility, losing things, trouble finishing classwork, um, difficulty with multi-step commands, that's inattention. The next group of symptoms are in hyperactivity, right? The typical uh, pre-pubescent boy that's jumping all over the place or fidgeting in his, his seat, right? That's kind of what you think about when you think about ADHD. Fidgeting, running around, always on the go. But the last group of symptoms, in my opinion, is the most important and the most confused because this is the impulsivity group of symptoms. These are the kids that have impatience, blurt out answers, may seem to talk too much or interrupt other people, but also can seem moody, can seem anxious, can, can seem really reactive. So if I were to rename ADHD to give you a better understanding of what it means, I would actually call it something different. I would call it over-under syndrome, over-under syndrome, to help you better understand these symptoms in real life. So someone that has ADHD typically is overstimulated. These are kids that when they're around other kids, they feed off that energy and they go crazy, more crazy than the other kids. These are kids that seem on their own to be really, really overly active. They can be overly impulsive and emotional, very quick to react to disappointment, something we called rejection dysphoria, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, where they can really get very quick to anger um, when they're triggered, quick to anger, quick to diffuse. And sometimes these are the symptoms that can look like a mood disorder. They are overly hard on themselves as well. These are the kids that really take disappointment so hard and they say, I'm never gonna get this. I'm never gonna win. I'm never gonna be good at themselves. They are so hard on themselves. So this is the part of over syndrome, I would say, is very typical for ADHD. And then the under part would be, these are kids that are underperforming in school. We know they're smart, they're capable, but they're just not showing it. They are underwhelmed. These are kids that are very easily bored. They have to be overly stimulated, have to always have something to do. Otherwise, nothing really gets to them. These are kids that can seem under-motivated, right? They kind of give up before they even start because they have figured out that they can't even show how smart they are. So they kind of give up, under-motivated. These kids are also understated sometimes. They withdraw from other kids. They try not to do even simple tasks sometimes because they know they're not going to be able to succeed. And I think oftentimes these kids are underwater. They're just kind of bobbing up and down at succeeding in school. And really, these are kids that can procrastinate to the last minute. And then right before the deadline, they seem to freestyle their way to the finish line, right? But they're struggling the entire time. And the times of underwater typically are second grade which is age seven, when they're just starting to do more, more academically rigorous work in elementary school. Sixth grade, where they make the transition into middle school and they have to move from class to class to class to class. And we know the mental load, right, for that age. Plus we know the hormonal shifts that happen at that age. And then again, ninth grade, when they start freshman year and they have to start that more academic rigor with the switching. So these are kids that also can seem overly interested in some things, but not other things. So it confuses parents, right? How come my kid can spend five hours playing Fortnite, but not be able to do five minutes of math facts? Doesn't make any sense. They can focus, right? But what's really important about ADHD is that these kids are misunderstood because we don't 
have the right name in ADHD because it's not really inattention. It is inconsistent attention. The ADHD brain is wired to be interest activated, not importance activated or priority activated. So if they have a deadline, they don't care as much. They're more interested in going outside to play with their friends, right? That's going to be their priority. So I think we have to rework how we think about ADHD, how we label ADHD, and how we work with these children. Because I think sometimes the emphasis on deficit makes us think these kids are less than when they're, they're not. They're different. They're still on the spectrum of normal, and we're still trying to help each kid succeed as best as they can. But I think realizing there are many, many different variations maybe gives us some, some more empathy for how it may be expressed. So those long-winded, but those are my thoughts about ADHD to help parents kind of understand that it doesn't quite fit that criteria all the time. Um, but anytime your mama, papa sense comes up and you're like, hmm, I'm kind of concerned about my kid not doing as well in school, or they just seem to not be following the directions I give them to do their chores, it's always worth first bringing it up to your fellow pediatrician, right? They're the ones that can help point you in the right direction. And oftentimes you both do scales, right? For ADHD, I would guess. The main scale we think about is the Vanderbilt, right? We give a, a scale to the teacher and a scale to the parent to fill out because again, two settings, right? In school and at home. So we look at those two and they're definitely different scales, but we start with the pediatrician. And um, I think it's, it's challenging because I know where I work right now in Arizona, pediatricians steer very clear of interventions for ADHD. So they might do the assessment, but doing the medications, a lot of pediatricians are really uncomfortable with. So I will get a lot of ADHD patients who are actually pretty bread and butter, so to speak, uh, because for the pediatricians, it is um, challenging with the medications and kind of tweaking it to get it to be, you know, ideal for the, the family. But, um, but yeah, so those are some of the symptoms and thoughts. I have so much to say about this. Sure, I'm sorry. Yeah, I kind of went off, but it was great. There's like a few points that you brought up that I was really like, I really hope people heard what you said there because everything was so, so dense and amazing. Um, the first is that you said that their brains are wired differently. And I, I, that's the thing Anna and I say all the time, this is not like there's just something wrong with you. It's that your brain works differently. Everyone's brain works differently, but also our education system at this current time is not very forgiving to different types of learning and different types of brain. And so these kids tend to stand out. Um, so that's one thing, but, but they, like you said, they're smart and they, you know, they have a lot to offer. That's the first thing. Um, the second is that you said that, that it's present in more than one environment. That's really important um, that, you know, p- parents recognize that if you have a child that's like an angel at school and, you know, what we say, like a devil at home or vice versa, they're, they're, you know, perfect at home, but then they go to school and all the wheels fall off. We're not saying nothing's wrong. We're, we're saying it's probably not ADHD because ADHD is not something you can turn on and off. It's the way their brains are wired. So if that's happening and it's situational, you still need to talk to your doctor and we still need to figure out what's going on, but it's probably not that it's probably something else and we'll come to the root of it. But it's super important for parents to distinguish that. The other thing you said was that teachers are not able to diagnose this, which is very true. And teachers know they're not able to diagnose this. So especially in Texas, 
teachers are very limited in what they can tell you. And we do rely on their feedback a lot. So what I find in my practice oftentimes is that teachers try really hard to relay their observations, but parents don't receive that because the teachers are kind of talking in code. They can't go, we think your child has ADHD, but they'll say, they'll say code words. Like he's having trouble focusing. He can't stay in his seat. He can't keep his hands to himself, or he is blurting out answers or like, they'll say stuff like that. And at the most, if the teacher would like, they could say, perhaps you need to talk to your doctor, but, but they can't just come out and say that either. So it really needs to be a fluid discussion. Um, so I would, I really encourage people and parents, especially in kindergarten, especially in kindergarten and first grade, if you are hearing certain things, um, you know, bring that forward to your pediatrician's attention. Like this is what we we try really hard. Anna and I to say like, how did the parent teacher conference go? What's the teacher saying about them so that we can help families. But I think a lot of the times it's just like going straight over their head because they have to be so careful about the way that they word things. And they also can't be mean. They can't say like everyone in my class can do this, but Jane can't, you know, they can't say that, but that, that would speak to a parent. Right. But they can't say it like that. They just have to say very concrete things. And then parents don't know, is that normal? Is that right or not? So that's another thing. And the last is also, I really want parents to also know that not all that looks like ADHD is ADHD. Um, there are a lot of, of um, diagnoses that can mimic it. Um, and so that's why it's so important to talk to your pediatrician about it. Things like obstructive sleep apnea, sometimes celiac disease, absence seizures, autism, those can all look and act like ADHD, but are not necessarily that. So it's a very kind of complex thing. Sorry about my rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I want to piggyback on a couple of things you said, especially with the teacher. So I come from a line of teachers. My mother was a teacher. My mother-in-law's a teacher. Um, and you know, when my sister who has ADHD, um, was in second grade, even though my mom was a teacher, my mom was not hearing the code words that the second grade teacher told my mom, my sister had to wait until she was an adult to actually get a diagnosis and get treatment. And, um, I think that's a very common story, especially for girls. I think a lot of girls are misdiagnosed underdiagnosed because they aren't the fidgety kid that stands out. And I I hear a lot of parents, you know, speak about teachers and speak about them with not such a positive tone because they feel like they're the teachers maybe singling out their child. And I just want to remind the listeners that teachers are trying their best. All teachers, of course, usually in public school have a lot of kids. They have 30 or 35 kids in their class. And I think what's interesting about that is that as pediatricians, you see kids Every day, several kids a day, 30 kids at least, I'm sure, right, in a day, back to back to back. But these teachers are seeing them all at the same time. So when one or two kids stand out, we have to take that as something, right? Because they're seeing a lot of kids in the same cohort. So when they see one or two kids stand out for a particular reason, we know that teachers, I think, have a good sense of what the normative range of child functioning for that grade is. So even though it might seem like the teacher is being too hard on the child, or maybe she is being, um, you know, too picky, it may be that they really are seeing something they don't want to hold their kid back. They don't want your kid to be struggling if we know that there could be something and some way to help them. 
So, you know, teachers, I think, do have their, uh, our child's best interest at heart and really want the kids to succeed academically. And you guys hit all of the, all of the main points so well. The only other thing that I would add is the functionality of what we're talking about, right? So a lot of times when parents come, like you said, the name is a little deceptive, right? Because they focus on, um, you know, can, are are they paying attention? Are they focusing on individual traits, right? And you kind of describe it more as a, a syndrome, or we're looking at how the child is thinking, how they're interpreting things and, and, and the way they think, right? And, and I usually try to ask the parents because a lot of us can lose focus when we're not doing things that we don't like, right? Like I always explain, you know, when I'm cleaning the house, I'm all over the place, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not necessarily focused, but when you're watching a movie that you really love, you're super focused for those two hours or whatever. And so I think the, the, the point that you guys hit really beautifully is that you know, is it affecting our ability to function in the world, our ability to go to school, our ability to maintain relationships, uh, you know, get a job in the workforce? Is it affecting our functionality? And if it is, then there's multiple treatment options. And I'm sure we're going to discuss all of those. But the one thing I was itching to say (laughs) when you said, you know, talk to your pediatrician, and what Sammy hit on is that there's so many other things that can look like it. And, and I really, really urge parents, because when we talk about just general, um, you know, kids not performing well in school or, or having behavioral problems, you know, the number one thing we talk about is sleep. How are they sleeping? You know, because if you're not getting good, restful sleep, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to focus in the day. Right. So I really want parents when they are thinking about their children potentially having ADHD is to to, to think about sleep, um, to think about nutrition. Right. Um, what they're eating, you know, what what could be stimulating them or overstimulating them. And then also their mental health. Right. Because a lot of times anxiety, depression can look like ADHD because when you're anxious or depressed, you might not be able to focus well and, you know, you might not be able to function well. So I just wanted to plug those in, but this is such a huge conversation and it's so nuanced that we could, all three of us could talk about it for hours, right? I I believe so. (laughs) Because I'm sure you guys are, I feel like pediatricians get the bulk of ADHD concerns first. I think the ones that end up coming to me are the ones that have that comorbidity. Um, you know, according to the, the, to the CDC in their most recent studies in 2016, about five in 10 kids that had ADHD also had uh, some sort of conduct disorder or oppositional defined disorder. Three in 10 kids would have ADHD plus some anxiety forms. So I tend to get the ADHD plus kids, right? The kids that have something else in addition to ADHD that really causes a lot of challenges. I think pediatricians get the first round of kids that have primary ADHD, um, but oftentimes I will get kids who have not responded well to medication interventions. So the pediatrician gives a couple tries, a couple rounds, they have side effects, and then they come over to me because you know it takes some time and some nuance to get those trials um, you know, working well um, if we can. Um, you know, and it's, it's still pretty common, you know, about um, in school aged kids and pre preschool age kids, about three to 5% of that population can end up having some ADHD symptoms. Um, and in a class of 30, that means about one of those kids are likely in treatment for ADHD. And you know, if it gets missed in childhood, 
about 30 to 65% of these kids continue to have some symptoms of ADHD going forward. We know with time, it's usually the hyperactive impulsive components that reduce and the kids grow out of, but the inattentive component typically can stick. And in adult practice as a psychiatrist, that emotionality, that hyperreactivity to rejection, to change, to disappointment, to being hard on yourself, that too can stick because having ADHD takes a toll on your own self-confidence. So I will see a bulk of kids who had ADHD in their elementary school. They hit sixth grade. They're like, oh my God, I have seven different classes. I can't juggle this stuff. No one believes me because I got through all A's in elementary school. And then they start having depressive symptoms. So 12 is a really critical age for undermanaged ADHD, where depression will really be the primary presenting symptom, but really underneath that, the root cause was ADHD. So there can be all sorts of manifestations for how ADHD affects people in their life. And um, oftentimes I find the really smart kids, right, can get by for a long time. Um, And the really hyperactive kids are the ones who are caught pretty early. But it doesn't mean that it's, it's not valid. I think a lot of times if a child has gotten through for a certain amount of time and then they present with these symptoms, parents and teachers are kind of like, well, is this really real? Maybe it is, you know, some hormonal thing. Um, Maybe it's not really ADHD. Maybe the child's just choosing not to work hard. Um, But I, I think that's where we come in as professionals to really validate the legitimacy of these concerns and give parents and children the option for how they want to proceed with treatment. That made me a little emotional. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's because it's so true and it's so important. And the confidence thing is actually the thing that, that, you know, we harp on the most as pediatricians. And I want to, I want to like visualize why to to parents, why it made me emotional. We know so much uh, of, you know, children and, and those building blocks in the first, first few years of elementary school about how much that kind of sets the the scene for how things are going to go for them in the future. And I want you to picture, I want parents that are listening right now to picture um, a child that at school has no idea. They're just being themselves, right? As hearing the teacher walk by, you know, their peer and say, "Um, great job on your work. That was awesome. Johnny, I need you to focus. Okay. You're not focusing. I need you to focus. And I need you to do this. You're still on the first question. Everybody else is on question 12. Now, same that same kid. What That's what he heard all day, all the time, right? Compared to everyone else. That same kid goes home. And then mommy and daddy will say, okay, it's time to take a shower. It's time to take a bath. Go take your clothes off. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, why aren't your clothes off? Why? What are you doing? Why are you sitting here staring at the wall? Or why are you sitting here? I thought I told you to do that. What do you, you know? And so this is what they're hearing. And it's no fault of anybody's. I mean, parents and teachers and adults are just being parents and teachers and adults. They're not trying. It's just that their expectations are not being met and the child hears that constantly. And so by the time these kids make it to, like you said, middle school or high school or later adult life, that's the that's the conversation that's been had around them is basically you can't. Right. Everyone's right. been telling them their whole life. We expected you to do this and you didn't, right? In tiny little microaggression yeah. type of ways. Yeah, totally. you know? 
And, and so it, that's the main thing with ADHD. So parents will often come to Anna and I, and they're like, we don't want to do medicine. We don't want to label him. We don't want to. And I get it 100%. I totally get where you're coming from. And it's not one size fits all. And we always do what we can for every family that, you know, no two children are alike. No two families are alike, but it just want that plug in their brain that, that we're talking about like a really finite amount of time that, that really kind of cements their inner monologue. And, um, it, it is, it's a really crucial time is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, that I totally agree. And I think, um, it was really, I mean, I, I bring up my sister as an example because, um, you know, I'm a year older than her and I, I don't have ADHD and it was really hard for her to have a sibling that didn't have ADHD where things just kind of came. And she had to struggle so much. And I I really do think it took her a long time to work on her self-esteem and self-confidence. And I think having that diagnosis really validated that there was something that was not her fault. And as an adult practitioner, treating adults that I diagnosed for the first time and finally got on the right medication. So many people had misdiagnoses of depression and anxiety, but really had ADHD. And once they finally got on that medication, it just made a world of difference and gave them their life, you know, gave them the life that they really have deserved to live this whole time. So it is, I I, I think it's wonderful that you described it that way. Thank you. Yeah. And also I think the other important thing is, is that each child is unique and not one size fits all. And so when you're parenting, you know, you have three kids, they're all going to be completely different, how they take in information, how they take in criticism, how they, you know, how they react with the world is going to be completely different. And it gets really hard for parents. And I, you know, you can't blame them because they're just trying to make it happen, you know, and teachers too. I think it's the nature of our system, which you guys hit on earlier is that we're trying to standardize everything and you can't standardize, you know, you have to, each child will, you know, build up their confidence differently. And so I think parents need to be, uh, you know, they need to also understand um, that if, if we haven't really taught each child how to focus, it's, you know, how are they going to learn? You know, it's something that we have to work on, I think, from the beginning. And, um, and those expectations can get really dangerous. So I'm glad, I'm really glad you guys brought that up. Um, but one question I wanted to ask you is, a lot of parents come to us, you know, when kids are in that you know, toddler, like three, two to three, four year old, where, you know, their kids are bouncing off the walls and they can't get them to do anything. And so they ask us about ADHD as a potential. And so when can you, can, when can parents um, start bringing it up to their pediatrician and when can we diagnose it? Get out of my head. (laughs) Thinking of the same thing. Well, you know, for so where I work now in um, in Arizona, um, I work with nurse practitioners. But in Arizona, only a psychiatrist can see the really young kids. So I have seen lots of three year olds and four year olds and two year olds with concerns for ADHD and autism and developmental delay. And um, I think they can start bringing the kids in as soon as they're concerned. However. We know that a little bit of impulsivity and a lot of hyperactivity and a little bit of inattention is very typical below the age of five. So in terms of attention, the expectation until the age of 12 is really one minute per age. 
of attention on something they don't really want to pay attention to. So if, if so, I've had parents come into me with a three-year-old saying he can't focus for more than three minutes on something, and I say, well, that is that's okay. That is developmentally expected at this age. Um, what I think is the more concerning thing for parents is the level of hyperactivity because hyperactivity comes with destruction, at least for my kids, right? So these are the kids that are really um, jumping all over the place, getting hurt, breaking bones, running into traffic, running into the parking lot, or very emotional, right? But again, this is an expected developmental phase to be very emotional. There, It's called terrible twos for a reason, right? And uh, my three-year-old is still highly emotional. <laughs> I have to remind myself that it's normal. But, um, you know, th- we're expected to have some gradation. Now, in terms of treatment, really FDA approved treatment does not start until age five. And um, I will tell you, it's very hard to get insurance companies to cover any medication below the age of five. Um, There are definitely times where I do provide that treatment, but it's few and far between. And we always try to avoid it. Before the age of six, really the predominant way to treat concerns for ADHD is called behavioral treatment that is parent-informed. So parent training with a behavioral modality to it. So what does that mean? That means you, right, parents, whoever's listening here, you know that every kid needs a slightly different approach, right? We can't parent each kid exactly the same way because they have different emotional demands of themselves and of us. So we have to kind of adapt how we approach each kid. And with ADHD kids, What worked for your other kids may not work for the ADHD kids. So we need to find a different way to engage that child and help provide positive reinforcement to encourage the positive behaviors and try to work on eliminating the negative behaviors. And that's kind of hard to figure out, right? It's hard to figure out for every parent, but it's harder for kids with ADHD. So that's really the mainstay of treatment for kids under the age of six that have some concern for ADHD. So can you diagnose it below the age of five? Absolutely. But it's harder, not just because of the developmental expectation of some level of inattention, hyperness, and impulse control, but also because we don't always have the secondary collateral source, the second setting. We have to hear from daycare. We have to hear from preschool. We have to hear from church. We have to hear from from playgroups, the other areas, because it's not just at home. It has to be in a different setting as well. So when I do get that collateral from two sources, um, or when it's very clear clinically in my office that the level of hyperness is really out of typical for kids that age, then I do give the diagnosis. But we we always want to make sure that there is not something else going on that results in the kid having these externalizing symptoms, such as mom and dad are getting a separation. They just moved their house. They switch change schools. Big brother just went to kindergarten and is not home with them. There are a lot of things that kids under the age of five don't speak out, but they still show it. They act out in different ways. So we have to really assess all those other factors and again, see how long it lasts for, right? Is it past the six month phase or is it really a couple weeks, a couple months of really some tough behaviors? So we have to kind of take all that in consideration. And and we know that under the age of six, brains are very malleable. You know, so I really, even though I could, I really try not to give meds before the age of six because their brains are developing with these medications on board. And we want to try to do our very best to have whatever gets into their brain and mind and hearts to be positive and natural and nourishing. 
but there definitely are times where I do provide medications, but it's few and far between. Same here. 100% the same approach. And I, I think a lot of people do have the misconception that when you're talking about ADHD, it, it means you are heading towards a life of medication. Then actually my spiel with, with parents when we first have the conversation is um, this is only here for one purpose. It's only here to help your child focus and succeed. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the times children, as they get older, they get some more maturity, some more insight. They start to understand how they think themselves and they can actually help manage their need for medication and they get, they need it less and less as they get older. Absolutely. So, so it's, um, it's not definitely not the goal to medicate for sure. I was wondering if we could do like a little fun, true or false thing. Would you, oh. be, would you be down with that? Sure. Yeah. Let's give it a try. You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at thepdpals.com. We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. All right. Um, these are a couple of things that we hear all the time. So I thought you could like you know, shed light on whether it's true or okay. false. Cool. Um, yeah. The first we hear all the time is there is a child's diet can affect their hyperactivity or ADHD or their behavior. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, uh, so evidence-based Your face. <laughs> answer is no diet does not affect it. However, clinically based life experience based, right? If you're a parent, you know, Halloween is coming. I know it is a Sunday this year, right? So Monday morning is going to be tough because Sunday <laughs> they're going to have candy and that's going to affect their sleep and affect their hyperactivity and affect their ability to listen to me. You know, I mean, so, so there are some, um, some types of diets that support that if you're on this diet, it will really affect um, reduction of symptoms, such as the fine gold diet, um, diets that are low in red dyes, low in sugar, low in gluten. Um, but in terms of the evidence, it's not quite there to support that a specific diet will support um, the expression of symptoms of ADHD. However, there is a new movement of nutritional psychiatry. You know, we are still understanding the gut brain connection, still understanding how what we eat influences how we act and behave. And there is more and more evidence that what we take into our bodies affects how our life is lived. It's kind of like a common sense thing, right? But <laughs> I think when we're practicing in medicine, we're looking for the evidence, right? We're looking for the studies. And I think the studies have not caught up with the real world. And I think um, all parents have probably figured out certain things their kids can and cannot eat that affects their kid in a positive or negative way, or certain things their kid eats really helps them to be their best. I mean, I have many, many parents who have kids with, with autism, for example, that they, they're very good at figuring out what foods can, can manifest certain symptoms in their kids, mainly because their, their kids are not verbal as well. So they really have to be good scientists. Um, but yes, so long-winded, I guess it's a yes and a no for that one. <laughs> 
true, false, both of it. <laughs> the only thing I would add to that is it's, I, compl- one, I think we completely agree with you. I was looking at Anna's face. It was like, she was like glowing as you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the only thing I will say too, is that we have to take the practicality of it into, into mind as well. Yeah. And, and I don't want parents to stress over this. If you happen to figure it out and you're, there's easy things that you can do that will, you know, help your life. Great. But, but be careful. You can go down this very tricky rabbit hole that has no evidence behind it. And before you know it, you are stressing yourself out way too much. It's too difficult to adhere to this. And you're, you're just like, you know, it's not helping the situation. It's actually causing more stress in your life. So I would just add the practicality of it sometimes too. Okay. Uh, Next one was, um, we kind of touched on this. The only thing you can do for ADHD is medicate. Definitely false. (laughs) Clear false. Yes. Great. Um, But, but, But I will say under the age of 12, right? The only evidence-based treatment that's not medication is parent training for behavioral interventions. Play therapy is not evidence-based for ADHD, for anxiety, for depression. Yes. For PTSD. Yes. But not for ADHD. Individual talk therapy is not evidence-based for ADHD intervention for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD, for other things. Yes. But not for ADHD. Now, how come? Because again, if someone has a brain that's wired differently, and we're trying to get that person to meet certain deadlines, the best way that kids under 12 are going to learn is from their parents. We are their primary teachers, right? The teacher's only there from eight to three. We're there the rest of the time. So we have to learn how to better train our kid to meet those deadlines and meet those expectations. So that really is the only um, evidence-based treatment, the parent training in behavioral um, in a behavioral model. And there are many different forms of behavioral models, but essentially it's some form of behavioral coaching or behavioral intervention, which is how do we line up reinforcing the positives and reducing the negatives. So that that's a great segue to the next question. True or false, focus can be taught. Yes, I think this is true. There definitely are ways to um, encourage focus and encourage and incentivize focus. So that's where a lot of the behavioral training comes from. How do we, um, what, what type of carrot and for how long do we hold that carrot to get the horse to move forward? That's really what the model of behavioral uh, coaching is about. All right. I have one. (laughs) I just thought of one before I forget. Okay. True or false. uh, ADHD is genetically acquired. So I'm going to say that that is true. We don't know exactly what um, are the pre precursors that definitively cause ADHD. We know some, we know cigarette use in utero is definitely a factor for ADHD development, not secondhand smoke, but in utero. So during the first trimester or beyond, we know certain drug use in utero can affect children having externalized symptoms that look like ADHD. We know there are certain um, genetic disorders. Prematurity, absolutely, can have um, symptoms of ADHD. And we know that it falls in families. So oftentimes if a kid has ADHD, there is some family member that also has ADHD it may not be diagnosed, right? There's several times I see parents bring in their kid, kid clearly has ADHD and the parent has some symptoms, but the parent is not my patient, right? So you work on building rapport, you work on providing the treatment. And then at some point I try to bring it up to the parents so that they're aware. And oftentimes it's led to the parent getting treatment and really helping the family dynamic because the parent didn't realize why they were so overwhelmed. 
but then they start treatment and they realize, oh, wow, like I can, I can do this now. Um, so yes. So I, I will, I will say yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it is a very, that is also not exactly straightforward because you have environmental factors and then you have genes, you know, and as we talk about genes, as we're learning more and more as a society about genes getting turned on and off, we know that it can run in families where people are more predisposed. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you have ADHD, your children, you know, will necessarily exhibit those symptoms. Um, but uh, definitely we get asked that a lot because a lot of times parents will also say, well, uh, I have ADHD, everyone has ADHD. So, you know, um, we automatically uh, think that their kids would be predisposed. And, and so I'm glad you you explained that so beautifully. The only other thing I would say is um, when talking about it, um, are there can be ways where you can, um, you know, if parents get treatment and if parents, uh, you know, pay attention to their symptoms, um, that a lot of those things can be mitigated as well uh, so for their kids. And so because... It, we do have control over our behavior and our learned behavior that it's not all doom and gloom. You know, you can try to prevent some of these and teach focus like we talked about earlier. So I just wanted to add that, but thank you for that. And answer. when we talk about environmental factors, those are things like maybe a chaotic household with several mm -hmm. children that all need the same demands of, of a two, you know, a two parent household where there, but there are many kids. It can yeah. be trauma, you know, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. It can be neglect. These are the environmental piece. So I wouldn't say that there's in terms of environment pollution, we're not really clear yet. Right. Factor. Right. Um, there is some evidence for lead poisoning to be a factor in developing ADHD, but those are kind of some of the environmental factors. But I think, um, when, when we mention environment, I think sometimes parents will think, well, if you change the environment, the ADHD will go away. <laughs> but that isn't typically the case. You know, we can try to work on the environment to maximize how the environment can help that child succeed, but it doesn't necessarily mean we'll mitigate all the symptoms. Right. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and one other thing I wanted to say, this is a total tangent, but I loved so much your, cause we, and, and I say this all the time too. I swear you're like a kindred spirit. It's like so great. Oh, great. But the whole like one minute for every year is like a, a reasonable expectation. And this is why a focus, and this is why like in kindergarten, they have stations or what do they call it? Um, centers. They are constantly right. moving because they can't expect all kindergartners to sit there for eight hours and just focus on the teacher. So they're constantly switching up what they're doing, but that also goes for eating. Um, so a lot of parents are like, is it normal that my two-year-old will take two bites and then run off? And I'll say, yes, I still want you to eat dinner as a family as much as possible, but it is okay after two minutes, if they get up and go, because that's not what they're interested in right now. Right. They're interested in exploring. That's normal for a toddler. And so that two minutes is all you can expect, but, but try really for that two minutes. And when they're three, you expect three minutes. And by the time they're, you know, 10, that's when you're sitting down and having like a family dinner together. Mm -hmm. So sorry. And then the last um, true and false was, um, can a child not have any symptoms of ADHD until middle school? Yes, because true, true, because it may not be picked up yes. until middle school. So it's not that it didn't exist. It's that the kid is so smart, so capable, so adaptable that they compensated and they could get by. But come middle school where they have the extra mental load of switching from class to class to class to organize, organizing, working with five different teachers versus just one that gets to know them, that may be the tipping point for the ADHD symptoms to really emerge. And I definitely have even had um, parents who come to me 
the, the pediatrician did not believe they had ADHD. The psychiatrist they saw before didn't believe it. So they went to see a psychologist to get specialized extensive testing in ADHD and looking at executive functioning, which is a more subtle way of attention um, and how, how you process information. So um, sometimes these kids really are missed. The smart kids are missed until later on, until that demand really exceeds. And in adulthood, I have had some parents and a lot of times women not get picked up until they had their second kid. You know, they got married, they owned a house, first kid, fine. But then you add in that second kid and they're juggling too. <laughs> and it just, everything is out the door. So it, it really is when the demand exceeds the internal capability. And that's where it goes back to what um, Dr. Um, Anna said about functionality. Is it impairing their function? Because if these kids can function okay, that's fine. Um, but I've had a lot of, again, a lot of girls get picked up in high school. They get through middle school. And then when they hit high school, that's when the demand is really triggered. Um, and sometimes it's med school, right? Sometimes it's not until you get to grad school or you get to college or you get to your, your first job or you failed several jobs and then you put the pieces together. So it really is when that, that demand exceeds what they can do. I thought of one more. <laughs> this is for this myself. Is I like this. This is a great <laughs> idea. I, I like one it. More. Um, <laughs> true or false? Can increased screen time worsen ADHD symptoms? Oh boy. Um, so that's a tough one. I, I don't know evidence-based if that's true or false, to be honest with you. However, I there actually is, in terms of treatment, there is a video game called Endeavor RX. Have you guys heard about this? Endeavor RX is a video uh, video game based ADHD treatment. It just received FDA approval a few months ago. I I don't know much about it. Um, I haven't used it myself, but I think it's a very interesting concept because it's using screen time right to build um, attention to work on ADHD. So the question was: Does screen time correlate with ADHD or develop ADHD? Yeah. Does it uh, does it worsen ADHD symptoms? Because we know that it decreases attention span for sure. Right. But right. Specifically with ADHD, I don't know. I think I think it is linked more so to emotional dysregulation. So I think if a kid has ADHD and they have difficulties with that impulse control, um, having to stop their preferred activity can really cause a lot of emotional distress. Um, I think that it also can cause kids that have um, oppositional defiant traits, difficulty with limit setting. Um, the stopping and starting of, of screen time can definitely um, affect externalizing symptoms that look like ADHD or moodiness, but I, I can't yeah, they're evidence-based if it's true or false. The reason I asked that question is because I think we don't have, we don't have the, the data for it, yeah. like you were saying. And it was more of a selfish question because I wanted to know, you know, if you had found any specific data that correlates it, but, you know, just, just thinking about it, I usually tell my parent, you know, my patients that um, there's a lot of screens are around and they're inevitable and they're everywhere, you know, but it's kind of how we're using it. So if we're using it functionally, for a treatment or for learning, and we're doing it for that purpose, it would make sense that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily interfere. But when we have the mindless watching on YouTube or the scrolling, you know, um, I can see how this generation, you know, is used to that quick turnaround, you know, and not having a sustained attention or needing to have sustained attention on one particular thing. So that was just my opinion, but again, not based by the data, you know, backed up by the data because we don't have it necessarily, but just wanted to pick your brain about it. 
And, and I do think it's interesting because from the parent perspective, watching the child on the screen, it seems like they're paying attention for five hours. But if you watch what they're doing, I mean, even right. when I watch my kids on YouTube, they're scrolling, they're spending yeah. two minutes yeah. on it and then they flip to the other, they flip to the other. And it, they, so they really are not focused entirely for that time. They are actually building um, a less, um, their duration of attention is actually just being encouraged yeah. to be a very short span of time. And right. I think most of uh, online activities are like that. I think fewer and fewer of us are engaging in long-term activities for, an, I mean, the adults that are doing our Zoom calls and our podcasts, yes, but um, in general, when we're on Instagram or we're on Facebook, we're doing the same thing. We're not really focused on one thing for a long period of time. So I do feel that uh, screen time is cultivating more of the inattentive qualities that is positively enforced by social media and by um, by how the world is evolving. You know, it's not just social media. I think our world is evolving to be multitasking, um, mm -hmm. doing being more efficient, which means less time, but more things in that less time um, and being more distractible. I do think that kids, um, at least my kids who are, I don't know if they're not Gen Z, right? They're below Gen Z. I don't even know what the name is called for that generation, but they're, <laughs> they're really, um, they're, they're, they're being rewarded for having a short attention span. Right. So I think it, we're going to see more and more ADHD pop up. And, you know, I have wondered, I don't know if I should say this, but I have wondered if ADHD is another evolution. It's another evolution of attention um, that may be positive, you know, because I think for a lot of these kids, and you touched upon it, uh, Dr. Sammy, when they get to adulthood, they may or may not need that treatment. And I think a lot of young people who are diagnosed with ADHD and hold that on their shoulders as a burden, um, as a negative thing, become an adult and find ways to use their ADHD for their advantage, can do multiple jobs, can find the job they're really passionate about, can, you know, can find ways to make ADHD work for them and not need medication and not need these interventions. And I tell parents this all the time. This doesn't mean your kid's going to be on meds forever, right? That's not the goal. But um, I do think that, especially with our younger generation developing in this way, with more screen time, um, I think that there, there may be a group of young people who really have less attention, but are actually more efficient and more productive than old fogies like me. <laughs> I, I so agree with that. And that, that's the thing I tell kids all the time. I, I say that the only thing that you might not be able to do is a desk job, but who wants one of those anyway? You might be the best multitasker ever. Um, you might you might find a job that requires you to move all the time, and then you'll be the best at it because you're good at moving, you know. And so, yeah, I totally agree. It's more about um, celebrating what they can do than than focusing on what they can't, um, because we all have those strengths and weaknesses. So, so to bring up my sister one more time, um, she she's a social worker. She's a um, a licensed social worker, and she was studying to become a clinical social worker to do therapy, which means you have a job like me, right? Where you're sitting down at a desk and you're talking and talking and talking all day long. And she hated it, hated it. What she was most successful at was being a hospital social worker where she went from floor to floor into the ER, all over the hospital, chatting with people, interacting with different um, specialties and getting the job done and moving on. And that would drive me crazy. Like I could not do that kind of work, but she loves it. So, you know, we all have different strengths and weaknesses, label or no label. And we're just trying to find a way to get to that place, to be happy, functional, successful, you know, and make the world a better place. And that's what we're trying to do for all kids. 
It's so true. And it's so motivational based, you know, so it's uh, different strokes for different folks, right? Like everybody has a different motivation, a different inspiration. And so cluing into that is the biggest thing. Um, and one last thing before we let you go, because we know you're a busy mom and you're a busy uh, psychiatrist, but um, I had, I was curious for my own selfish reasons again, because <laughs> a lot of parents ask us about, you know, things they can do from the beginning, you know, because everyone has ADHD and, um, you know, how do we teach them how to focus? How do we teach them these skills? And something that me and Sammy love to talk about are some alternative techniques like meditation. And we know that there's, it's, gaining a lot of, um, you know, more research and a lot of light is being shown on some of these alternative techniques. So wanted to pick your brain about it. We can talk about it all day long, but wanted to get your thoughts too. For meditation and ADHD. Yes. If it, if it helps with symptoms or is it something that parents can do, um, at a young age uh, to help mitigate some of those symptoms? So again, I think the evidence is kind of not, not quite caught up with real life. Um, I think going back to the idea of the three core symptoms of ADHD, the attention, hyperactivity, and impulse control. If we think about the concept of meditation, which is really stilling the body to then still the mind, to then be aware of our thought process. I mean, there are many, many forms of meditation, many forms. I don't know if this is the one you're talking about, but when I think of meditation, I think you're stilling the body to still the mind, to be conscious of the thoughts, to have more control of the thoughts and the reactions those thoughts have. So when you think about practicing this, that should naturally help with hyperactivity, should help with impulse control and emotional reactivity, and should help with some attention, right? Because when you meditate, you realize how crazy distracted we all are, right? Like you get a concept of how many thoughts are in your head at the same time and how, how paying attention to each of those thoughts really can drive a lot of inner unrest. So it's sorting out, sifting through what thoughts do I let go? What thoughts do I pay attention to? What thoughts don't I? So as you train your mind to be more aware of which thoughts serve you and don't serve you, which thoughts cause physical manifestations of frustration, anxiety, tension, where in your body, building that body awareness, I think naturally you can infer that will help with building attention, emotional regulation skills, and helping keep control of your body movements and hyperactivity. So that would be what I would, I would um, say about meditation. Um, but it's hard to teach meditation with kids, right? Cause again, that, that one minute per age, right? Like if you're doing meditation with kids, you have to use a form of meditation that is active in some ways and slowly and gradually builds up on that time of that stillness, because we also want kids to be feeling good about their progress. So I think along with meditation is motivation. I think that's what parents can really learn. Um, I took my, my son to be evaluated by, uh, by an OT because his handwriting is really uh, messy. And she did, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, right? I know this stuff, but her technique was so great. She gave something called a Bravo buck, little dollar bill. And every time he went through some part of the assessment and he tried, she gave him a certain number of Bravo bucks. And at the end of it, he was allowed to pick a certain number of rewards from the reward jar. And just things like that, I think are so simple, 
but we can remind parents our ways to motivate kids to kind of keep going because I could see in his face, every time he got a buck or two, he brightened up, right? Even if he thought he did a terrible job, he felt good getting something and it wasn't candy, right? It wasn't candy. It wasn't a marshmallow. Unfortunately, it wasn't an M&M, the things I use. <laughs> it was something that was non-food, but still helped kids to feel good. And I think that's what we need to remind parents to, to shift towards. How can we help kids feel good for the things they're doing right, for putting effort and energy into it versus focus on the things they do wrong, like when they don't pay attention, don't sit still. So it is shifting our attention. I think it is human nature to focus on the negative and not the positive. So I think as adults, we're all relearning, right? Gratitude, positive awareness, um, just bringing our attention to the glass half full. I'll add one I thing love to that. that with regards to meditation. And one of the reasons why Anna and I are so, so passionate about it is that, um, I, again, you know, I felt like a broken record, but our academic system, uh, obviously, you know, in some ways probably needs a major overhaul and it really only, uh, rewards a certain type of a student, a certain type of person. And that doesn't mean that every other student that goes through this academic system is ill-equipped to succeed at life. Um, and there's, you know, countless examples of, of, you know, people who weren't great scholars or academics, but then ended up making a huge impact on the world or, or just had personal satisfaction and happiness. Right. And so meditation at the very least, whether your child has ADHD or doesn't, or has anything really anxiety or doesn't really anything. Um, it's a wonderful way to teach yourself and kids to coping skills and how to regulate their emotions. And for some parents, I just tell them, you know what, for some people, school is just something you have to survive. You just have to get to the other side and then life is different. You know, expectations are different. Things are different. And then you, you're, you suddenly your, your life, you know, your scope gets expanded and you're exposed to all other kinds of people and walks of life and whatever. And meditation is a means to help them get through that and not get caught in, uh, in what doesn't work for them basically. Right. Yeah. What I loved you, what you said is it brings awareness. And I think that's the most powerful thing because just stopping and thinking about what you're thinking about, you know, just acknowledging um, the awareness. Cause a lot of parents will say, well, you know, sitting there for a minute and focusing on a breath or, you know, doing a walking meditation, which you can do, or, um, you know, we, we've, we learned about some new techniques, like repeating your favorite color over and over again, you know, how can something like so small like that be so profound, you know, but like you so eloquently said, it is, it's that stillness, you know, it's that pause because we are constantly overstimulated and we're having information thrown at us from all angles. And the young, growing, developing mind, you know, has to take all that in and interpret it and then, you know, act accordingly. And so to have kids doing that in this world where we're all so overstimulated, you know, teaching them that moment to just to be still and just be in the moment. You know, you can be aware that you are anxious. You can be aware that you're fearful, but not have that emotion. You know, you can, you can understand that this is what um, I'm feeling and, and just having that awareness is so powerful. And so we, this is why we can, we can talk about this forever because 
it's building those life skills that no matter if you're ADHD or not, no matter if you have anxiety or history of it or depression, that when you come through some adversity, you, you always have that ability to pause and think and settle and to self-reflect, you know? And I think that's why it's so powerful and something that we should start from, from the beginning, you know, all of us. <laughs> and I think for someone who has the ADHD mind that is wired to be so overly active, this is where meditation, I think, can be really powerful because yeah. I think for them to gain the awareness of where their mind is going and not just follow it everywhere and follow the emotion everywhere to give some distance, right? Between becoming a curious observer of your thoughts mm-hmm. versus you are your thoughts, right? You right. are sometimes your thoughts, but you're also separate. And just gaining that awareness, I think, could be really powerful for, for people with ADHD. Um, but it's a skill. You're really yeah. speaking our language now. <laughs> like skill, this is why we love it. you. <laughs> we would love to get your opinion on um, medications. And I know that it's a big topic. And I know that there's, um, you know, it's a nuance and each child is different in how they get treated. But we would love to get your thoughts about how parents can get their children started on medication if they do have ADHD. So the first thing to do is get assessed by the right person, right? So you don't just jump on medication because again, the teacher was concerned. You bring it up to your pediatrician, then you bring it up to uh, another expert. If the pediatricians are, are not feeling comfortable, um, like a psychiatrist or a developmental pediatrician or a neurologist, a pediatric neurologist. Um, but what I would say is, we always try to use the smallest amount of medication for the biggest effect. And what I would say is that sometimes it takes some time to figure it out. We may not get it right the first time. Um, there are two general categories of ADHD medications. And again, I'm not so, so fond of the labeling here, but they're called the stimulants. These are the medications that include Ritalin and Adderall, um, some other, uh, so I'm using brand names here, but because you may know of them, um, Vyvanse, Focalin, Concerta, Daytrona, there are, and there are newer medications as well that I'm, I'm not mentioning here, but these are the stimulants, which really work as an on and off switch. These are medications you can use just for school days or just for certain times, or you can choose to take them every day, but usually they work as an on and off switch. And then there are a group of medications called the non-stimulants, which you do actually have to take every day. And that includes clonidine or Capfe, guanfacine or Intuniv, Stratera or Atomoxetine. Um, also, sometimes we can use bupropion as well, but these are the two general categories. And there are many, many more medications in the stimulant family that I did not mention. In general, though, the goal is to use, if you have ADHD and you're diagnosed with that and it impairs you, you use a medication plus some behavioral intervention together. The combination is the gold standard, not one or the other. How come? Because although the stimulants may work as an on and off switch for a certain number of hours a day, ADHD is all day, right? So you still need the help of the parent to help provide those boundaries and those skills to help the child when the medication wears off. The main side effects of the stimulant medications are pretty common. Sometimes they go away, sometimes they don't. Um, And if they don't, we go back to our friendly pediatrician, right? To sort out if this is really, if the side effects are outweighing the benefits. But the main side effects are number one, reduced sleep, and number two, reduced appetite. So very, very common. Sometimes when we try different medications in the stimulant family, this can still happen to varying degrees. 
Rarely we could have a development of a tick, an involuntary motor movement disorder. Rarely we may have kids with some um, increased anxiety. And for me as a psychiatrist, I often see the kids that have the side effect of moodiness when they're either on the medication or the medication's wearing off. So if there's some mood component that is triggered by being on the stimulants, this is generally where I will step in and take the patient from the pediatrician and work with them to find um, a better fit for them. So um, the stimulants generally work on the inattentive qualities, right? Helping kids to be able to be more focused, prioritize better, be more organized. It also can help with the hyperness and impulse control, but because it wears off, Sometimes when it wears off, that hyperactivity or impulsivity can come back in full force when it's wearing off. We call that rebound hyperactivity. It's a pretty known and common side effect from the withdrawal of the stimulants. The non-stimulants, the clonidine, capfe, intuitive, guanvacine, those help more with the hyperactivity and impulse control. And if your kid is really, really young and you're concerned for ADHD, we typically will start with that. Um, if they're school-aged and are really having trouble in school, it depends on the practitioner. You may start with the stimulants or the non-stimulants, and it depends on the symptoms you're having there. Because again, it's a syndrome. So your kid with ADHD may have various different um, symptoms, and you want to tackle the symptom based on the medication. Um, the stratera, which is a non-stimulant, can also help with inattention. However, it is not a very robust medication. It's not as effective with attention as the stimulants, but there are some kids, particularly the subgroup that have the comorbidity of anxiety and ADHD, they do very well on Stratera. But again, it is a trial and error. We have to work together as a team with the family and the child to see what is the best fit for you. And depending on who you see, there are some doctors who will say, you know, ADHD affects you 365 days of the year. You should be taking the medication 365 days of the year. It should be every single day. My tactic though, is that if this is to help you with school, which it mainly is for a lot of kids, and if it is to help you function better in school, my preference, and if you have a side effect like poor sleep or poor appetite, then my preference definitely is to take it only on school days or only on the days you need to. And on the weekends to take a break or during longer holidays like summer or winter, then take a break. Because I really want the kids for these medications to be on as little as possible for as few days as possible. But there are families where really their life, the family life, where the child's functioning socially is so much improved with the medication because socially these kids really have a hard time with boundaries. They're the kids that talk over other people. They're kind of socially awkward. Sometimes their energy is off-putting to other kids and it hinders their confidence in forming their social circles, which we know is really important for developmental growth um, and their self-confidence. So for these kids, sometimes I do recommend taking the medication every day and then again, take a break over the summer if you can handle it, because it helps them with their social interactions and relational skills. So it is a case-by-case -case basis, um, taking the medications versus not, but there's a, there's a fit for all. And there's a fit for those who don't want medications too. You know, if you go head, in, head first in as a parent and really do the behavioral management and behavioral coaching for ADHD, you can do a lot of good without medications but it will be a family effort. It'll be everybody working together, the child working together with you. You're really using those strong 
incentives and motivations. Um, and for some families, that's, that's enough, you know? Wow. That was really, really a great summary. I don't think we could have done it <laughs> better ourselves, but yeah, no, it's definitely something that you have to work with your pediatrician, your psychiatrist, you know, uh, very closely. I know both of us, um, treat ADHD on a normal basis as well. And, um, it, and like you mentioned, it's not a one size fits all. And another misconception I just wanted to add in there is that, um, the dosage for ADHD medicine is not like the dosages of other medicine, you know, it might not necessarily be weight based. Um, you know, a lot of it is, uh, how it helps our function. So I have lots of teenagers on a very, very small dose of a medication, and that is all they need to give them that baseline to be able to do well in school and to be able to focus. And so that's another thing I just wanted to put in there. Um, but yeah, you explained that so beautifully with the two classes of medications, but again, one child could take one, one medication and have multiple side effects and have a, you know, a much harder time. And then another child uh, might do great. And so sometimes it can require that trial and error. So patience is key. I think when it comes to treating ADHD um, in all, in all aspects of ADHD, which is so hard. And trust. I think that, um, you know, oftentimes families come in and they're really scared you know, they have a family history of addiction. These medications are controlled. They have to show their ID to get them. They get really nervous about putting their kids on these yeah. medications. And I say, that's okay. We don't have to do it right now. <laughs> it is not a life or death situation. We can wait. We talk through the options, let them do their research, come back, you know, or they wait until it gets to a point where they really think they need to intervene now. So I, I always want parents to be comfortable, you know, just be, if we can't pressure anyone to do anything and definitely not the kids. Right. So what I find is, is harder sometimes actually is that the parents would want the kid to try the medication and the kid themselves has some hesitation. I find this a lot for preteens like this 10 to 13, they're trying to exert their independence, which is what they're supposed to do, but, um, you know, really hesitate with medication. So we need to have everybody on the same page, everybody feeling like they're open to giving it a try to benefit this child um, and clear on the reasons um, and, and wait till they're comfortable. There's no rush. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Um, did you have any other questions, Sammy? No, no. I wanted to say that was super informative. Um, and thank you again so much for coming. And if you wouldn't mind one more time, just letting our audience know where they can find you. Sure. So you can find uh, my podcast, Thinking It Through with Dr. Naidu, child psychiatrist on Spotify, on Apple. Um, I have a website on Orchid Exchange, which is um, a professional platform for um, psychiatrists and for therapists. So I have a website up there, but um, hopefully I will have you guys listen into my podcast too. And I'm so grateful, you know, PD Pals for having me here. I'm happy to come back anytime if there's a topic that parents want to hear about. Um, you know, I, I just look forward to working with you because you guys are really the, the forefronters at the front line of providing good mental health care. You know, the parents come to you first and they trust you first. And I really appreciate your holistic approach to really help give kids and parents that peace of mind. Because if they can trust you, we can go so far with helping them get to where they want to go. You're so sweet. Thank you again for coming on. And um, hopefully we can chat again. Absolutely. Thanks so much, guys.
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.